Welcome back, Bible readers. This is the continuation of the previous podcast. The previous podcast was week 39A, and that covered the prophets Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. This podcast, which is 39B, will cover Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So let's begin with Haggai. Once again, while these minor prophets are rather small in size, their messages are very powerful and very relevant to us. Now, these last three prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, are commonly called the post-exilic prophets. And yes, that name indicates their time of prophesying. So Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi prophesied after the Jewish people returned from the exile and were starting to get reestablished in their land. So Haggai was the prophet to minister to the remnant of Jews that had returned to the land. After um, Cyrus allowed the people to come back, the remnant, about 50,000 or so, um, they returned to their own land and began the rebuilding process and resettling process back in their communities. Um, as they returned, the rebuilding project, um, however, of the temple was sidelined by enemies and soon came to a complete halt. And it was in this setting that Haggai began his ministry. Now, there's no question as to when Haggai ministered because he dates his prophecies with great detail. Uh, month, day, and year. He's very specific. So as we come to chapter 1 in the book of Haggai, the year is 520 B.C. The people have been reestablished in their land for about 15 years, but only the temple foundations had been laid. Haggai began with a rebuke about priorities. You see, because the people's houses were well built, but the temple of God still laid in ruins. And so Haggai calls them back to the divine priority of rebuilding the temple. And about three weeks later, the work on the temple resumed after 15 years of inactivity. Now, in chapter 2, as the people began to rebuild the temple, some of the older ones helping out were discouraged. They were discouraged because their works, um, the, the building, rebuilding of the temple, was not near the glory and quality and majesty of Solomon's temple. So they were upset, almost whining as a result. But the Lord encourages them with this promise that even though it is not like Solomon's, I will still be with you. He would still dwell with them. God even promised that he would make this temple greater than the glory of Solomon's temple. Well, how would God do this? Well, if we fast forward in history, first, the second temple was later remodeled by Herod in the New Testament, which exceeded the size of Solomon's temple and exceeded the splendor as well. And the second way God would do this is that in this temple in the future, Herod's temple, the incarnate Son of God, stood and taught, whereas in Solomon's temple, the glory of the Lord was hidden behind the veil that separates the holy place from the holy of holies. So while this temple may not have been great in their eyes, it would be great eventually in the future. Now the book of Zechariah is next. The remnant of the people had already responded to Haggai's messages and had resumed temple construction. Now Zechariah ministered to the people and encouraged them further. The prophet told of God's abundant future blessings on the nation, which filled the people with hope and courage. So we can place Zechariah's ministry about two months after Haggai's. And so Zechariah begins his book with a short history lesson. He reminded them that their ancestors had paid a high price for their sin and as a result suffered exile. And so the first section of Zechariah, which is chapter 1, verses 7 through chapter 6, verse 8. This is the first main section. And in this section of chapters, Zechariah received eight different visions, all occurring, it seems, on the same night. And these visions contain a plethora of information about Israel's future. The visions were highly symbolic, and as a result, Zechariah needed help from our friend, Remember, we talked about him in the book of Daniel, the interpreting angel. And it's always nice when the interpreting angel shows up 
to help you understand the vision that you just had, especially if you're a prophet. So the first vision, chapter 1, verses 8 through 17, the prophet sees a man standing among some myrtle trees. And the point of the vision is that one day God will end Gentile domination of the nation of Israel. The second vision, chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, contains four horns and four craftsmen. And this vision is communicating the same truth that Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 uh, communicated, namely the course of Gentile world powers to come. The third vision, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, looks forward to a time when the Messiah will be present. Jerusalem will be rebuilt and Israel will become the nation that she was always meant to be. The fourth vision, which is the entirety of chapter 3, Joshua, who is the high priest, is standing before the Lord in filthy garments. Joshua represents the statutes of the nation, or excuse me, the status of the nation. Uh, She is filthy and she is wicked, but one day God will remove the sins of the land in one single day and he will restore his people. The fifth vision, which is chapter 4, is of a candlestick and olive trees. The olive trees provide an unending supply of oil to the candlestick. Um, In essence, Zechariah saw a lamp that would never go out because it had a constant supply of oil. And the point of the vision was that God would enable Israel's leaders to accomplish his work. The never-failing supply of oil pictures the power of the Holy Spirit that would enable the leaders to do so. The sixth vision, which is chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, tells us that God will judge evildoers and purge sin from his land. And the scroll here in the text symbolizes the righteous standards by which God would judge the wicked. The seventh vision, which is in chapter 5, verses 5 through 11, is of a woman um, in a measuring basket. And that measuring basket indicated that Babylon will once again be the center of worldwide evil. Um, The cover holding the woman captive in the basket pictures God's restraining of Babylon's evil. You know, as bad as things were for Zechariah, they would be much worse if God had not been restraining evil. The eighth and the final vision, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, shows that God would judge the nations because of the way they treated the nation of Israel. Now, chapters 7 through 8 form the next section of Zechariah, and these chapters take us back to the historical situation that Zechariah found himself in. Now that a new temple had been built, should the people need to continue fasting and mourning over the fall of the temple or city? Zechariah pointedly says, don't mourn over these events, but rather mourn over the sins that caused these events. He's very specific. However, chapter 8 tells us that the rebuilding of the temple symbolizes God's renewed blessings for his people. So instead of fasting, joyous celebrations should be held as they celebrated God's work. Notice how many times chapter 8 uses the phrase, the Lord says, the Lord says, the Lord says. Each clause introduces a promise of future blessing for his people. Now chapters 9 through 14 form the last section of the book, and these two chapters, or excuse me, these chapters contain two burdens, or some Bible translations say two weighty messages that Zechariah had about Israel's future. The first burden is in chapters 9 through 11, and it traces God's work on behalf of his people from the conquest of of Alexander the Great to the arrival of the Messiah in the New Testament. Now, would you now, you would expect that all the work that God had done for his people on, and on behalf of his people would be rewarded with the acceptance of the Messiah by the people. 
But that didn't take place because the people rejected God's shepherd, Jesus. This is where we find the messianic prophecy in chapter 9, verses 9 through 11, of a righteous king arriving, riding on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of the donkey. Of course, the first part of this prophecy was fulfilled when Jesus rode into Jerusalem. But the second part is yet to be fulfilled. Blessings were supposed to come, but they did not materialize because the people rejected the Messiah. And so what Zechariah does is Zechariah acted out a parable to show how the people refused to follow the Messiah. Israel did not accept the shepherd or ruler that God provided her. She wanted a kingdom, but didn't like God's choice of a king. Sounds like what happened in the Old Testament when the people wanted a king and they wanted Saul. The people wanted to choose their king. By the way, have you ever thought about how the three monarchs of Israel, Saul, David, and Solomon, represent kind of Israel's past, present, and future. You know, the people didn't like God's choice of Jesus to rule, so they chose Saul. At the second coming, Jesus will return and defeat the enemies of God, like David did as king of Israel. And then Christ will set up and rule a kingdom of peace and prosperity with a temple built, like when Solomon brought Israel into a time of prosperity and peace, and he also built a temple. You see all the parallels there? Well, moving on, in chapters 12 and through 14, it focuses on the second um, burden of Zechariah, which primarily focuses on the second coming of Christ. The very things that God set out to achieve under the first burden or the first coming of Christ will be finally accomplished at the second coming of Christ. And during this present age, according to Romans 11.25, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles come in. Now, did you catch that last part? Until the full number of Gentiles come in. That means that Israel's hardening has been beneficial for the Gentiles, for us, because it allows more people the opportunity for salvation and to become part of God's future kingdom. But a time will come when the Jews will realize and acknowledge that the Messiah they had long waited for has already come and was pierced and died to pay for their sins. This realization will bring about a national repentance so that all of Israel will be saved. And this event will happen at the second coming of Christ. Now, again, I told you this podcast was going to be long. We're on to the last book, the book of Malachi. Now, we don't have a specific date for Malachi, but internal evidence suggests that he ministered around the same time as Nehemiah. Malachi's enduring message was a proper view of God. If the people took God seriously, then their sinful ways would be corrected. And so Malachi begins his book with a reminding, a reminder to the people about God's love for them. He had selected them and preserved them through all their hardships. He was their chosen people. Malachi first singles out the priest in chapter 1, verses 6 through chapter 2, verse 9. The priest had to despise the Lord by offering defiled sacrifices to him, sacrifices that were not ritually clean or acceptable. And by doing this, they defiled and they made unclean the altar of burnt offerings. And so in addition to this, the priests were offering lame, blind, and sick animals as sacrifices. These were unacceptable. Anything second rate that we offer God is inappropriate in view of who he is. The priests were treating him like any other common God, but even more evil than that was that the priests were also cheating God. They vowed to offer acceptable sacrifices, but then at the last minute, they would substitute an inferior one. They mistakenly thought that their actions went unnoticed by God, but Malachi confronted them for their hypocrisy. And furthermore, the priests in Malachi's day ignored their mandate to be faithful teachers of God's word, and instead they were sharing false teaching that caused Israel to stumble. These priests should be reliable sources of information and instruction because they are messengers of God. 
Now, at chapter 2, verse 10, through chapter 3, verse 15, Malachi shifts his focus to the sins of the people. It was the sins of the priests, now it's the sins of the people. The men were divorcing their Jewish wives to marry foreign wives, and apparently it was for political, economic, or social reasons, all reasons that are not acceptable reasons. The people were also showing a lack of trust in God's promised justice. They doubted God's threats to hold people accountable for their actions. They thought that God's methods of justice, uh, His methods, were never going to come. And so God responded to the cynical attitude of the Israelites by pointing them to the future. Uh, This wording is reminiscent of Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5. God would send a messenger to prepare the way of the Lord. That messenger would be John the Baptist. The people were also robbing God by refusing to pay him their tithes and offerings. This leads to their attitude of apathy. You know, it's futile to serve God, they said. What do you gain by carrying out his commandments, they said. The people began to question the goodness of God. Now look at chapter 3, verse 16. Look at what it says. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with each other and then listened to what they said. In the presence, a scroll of remembrance was written to record the names of all those who feared him and always thought about the honor of his name. It seems that some of Malachi's hearers who generally feared the Lord got together and they discussed his message. They realized they needed to repent, and God paid attention to their heart attitudes and what they said. And the text also said that in the presence of God, the names of these were written down as a record. They're going to be rewarded. You see, not only will judgment be meted out to the wicked according to their deeds, but the deeds of the righteous will also be rewarded. Whether those righteous are living in the Old Testament times like here in Malachi or others living in the New Testament times like us, God will not remember our sins, but the text is clearly telling us that he's going to remember our righteous acts, just like in the New Testament and the judgment seat of Christ that Paul talks about in Corinthians. Well, this leads us right into chapter 4, wherein God is preparing a day in which judgment for the wicked and a day of reward for the righteous would come. Malachi then reminds the people of two individuals, Moses and Elijah. First, they were to obey the law given through Moses, and second, they were to look forward to the arrival of Elijah, who would return before the time of trouble to bring about the national renewal of Israel. All right, so think about this. As the Old Testament closes, the last words in the ears of the people were to look back to Moses for stability and guidance and to look ahead to Elijah for hope. Now stay with me here. Let me connect all these things for you. As we move into the New Testament, we find that an angel tells John the Baptist's parents that their son would minister in the spirit and power of Elijah. You know, the same Elijah we just referenced here in Malachi. And that's in Luke chapter 1, verse 17. However, John the Baptist denied that he was Elijah. John chapter 1, verses 21 and following. And so Jesus said that John would have been the Elijah who was to come if the people of his day, the New Testament days, had accepted Jesus as their Messiah. And he says that in Matthew 11, verse 14. But since the people of the New Testament did not accept Jesus, John the Baptist did not fulfill this prophecy about Elijah coming, although John did fulfill the prophecy of him being the Messiah's forerunner. That was in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. We mentioned the forerunner earlier. So following the transfiguration of Jesus, this is in Matthew chapter 17, Jesus said that Elijah would come and restore all things. Now, whether the original Elijah will appear before the day of the Lord or whether an Elijah-like figure will appear similar to John the Baptist, we don't know. Just look at it this way. What John did for Jesus at his first coming, preparing their hearts 
to receive him. This latter-day Elijah will do for Jesus at his second coming. Now, if you go into the book of Revelation, it tells us that there are two witnesses who will carry out this ministry, this ministry of preparing the way before the second coming of Christ. Who will those witnesses be is still a mystery. One of them we know will be an Elijah-like person and another one a Moses-like person. Will they be the actual individuals? I don't know. We're not told. Now, you see what we've done? The last few verses of the Old Testament have already connected us to the story in the New Testament. Actually, it's all one grand story of redemption. And we have finished the first act called the Old Testament. The second act is equally impressive, especially because God himself in the flesh decides it is time that he become a man. And the only way that his people in the world is going to have any chance of redemption is going to be because of his once and for all sacrifice. Well, that's all for this week, and I know it got divided into two podcasts, but I hope you'll understand. Next week, we start with Matthew. And so now you can get a sense of the sheer volume that is in the Old Testament compared to the New. So many are guilty of spending their lifetime focusing solely on the New Testament, but you really can't understand the New Testament without a firm grasp on the Old. So be a student of the Old Testament and not just the New Testament only. All right. I know you probably have lots of questions, so email those questions to BibleReadingLNBC.org. And as I talk with you next week, we're going to start in the New Testament. So this weekend, go out and celebrate. Have a party. You finished the old, and now we're into the new.